Good morning, everyone. My name is Lyndon. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a great honor to be able to speak to you this morning. But the first thing I want to do is I need somebody who has incredible athletic ability to come and help me with something. Uh, Reese Gibson. I know he has incredible athletic ability because he told me he does. I mean, come on up, Reese. Reese is a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of my family's. He's my daughter's brother-in-law, all those types of things. Reese, can you catch a ball? So in order to do that, we're going to practice a little bit. You need to have some pretty good um, hand-eye skills, right? Let's just try that. Okay, and you have to have some pretty good, yeah, good job, thank you. Pass it back, thank you. And you have to have good, good judgment, you know, the, thank, thank you. Yeah, my wife told me my uh, reflexes are slowing down, so we'll try it again, Reese. You have to have good judgment, yeah, the ability to hang on. Okay, so what I want you to try and do, Reese is uh, I want you to try these on. Now these, my, uh, my uh, little glasses here, are actually called drunk busters. What they are, I don't know if any of you have seen these, but they basically imitate what it would be like to be at least .08 or higher over the legal, legal limit. That would be impaired judgment. Would you agree? Okay, so Reese, let's put these on. How do you feel now? Okay, so uh, you ready to play some catch? <laughs> Let's try that again. Hey, not bad. Hey, pass it back. Okay, that's good. Let's try it one more time. Hey, okay, pass it back. All right. Hey, would you mind going and picking those up for me? See if you can go and find those for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, you can take those off while you grab the other ones for me. Let's give them a hand. Thank you, buddy. So I wanted to show you that um, partly because I think all of us understand the obvious message of that is that we don't want to be doing things that are important with, with um, impaired judgment. Bad things happen when our judgment is impaired. Bad things happen to other people and to us and people get hurt. But I don't think Jesus was talking about that kind of impairment when he came to the passage that we want to study today. And I just want to preempt this by telling you that this is a passage that's been very challenging to me this week. It's a passage I need and I'm going to assume it's a passage that probably will probably get in a few people's kitchen and um, I think we need to consider it carefully. Matthew 7, 1 to 5, says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So to begin with, I just want to take a moment and ask the simple question, who is Jesus' audience? If we look at Matthew 4 and then into verse 5, the, the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5 to 7 of Matthew. So it tells us right at the beginning, the writer shows us who Jesus' audience was. 
Verse 425 says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So the reality is Jesus is teaching his disciples with a crowd around as well. No doubt in that crowd there were probably a few of the religious elite. But it's not his primary audience to say that it's the religious elite that he's speaking to. Matthew 7, 28, 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, I've had this misconception that what Jesus was doing, he was, I was, he was actually teaching, but every once in a while when the hard parts of the sermon would come, he would snipe at the religious leaders. I'm not totally convinced that that was what he was doing. Instead, what I believe is there were probably his way of saying, if you want to know what it's like to live in the kingdom of God, to follow the better way, to follow me, to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to live in his kingdom, listen up. So it's not just for the religious hypocrites out there. It's for all of us. Okay? So I want to start with that. So then what does Jesus mean when he says judge? Well, the Greek word that's used here is krino. It means pass judgment on the deeds and words of others. In the context of this, judging severely or unfairly, finding fault with this or that in others. In short, to condemn. That's what that passage is, or that word is being used there. And so what is Jesus saying in this passage? Don't do it. Judge not. So now we can go home. Because we know that's what Jesus wants us to know. But is that where it should stop? Should it be judge not, period? I'm not, I'm not convinced. Eric Bargerhuff wrote the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, and this is what he says. One could easily argue that Matthew 7.1 is by far the most frequently misapplied verse in the entire Bible, used and abused by both Christians and non-Christians alike. Those who handle this verse often use it as a shield for sin, a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing them to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. Their objections sound like this. Aren't we all sinners? What gives us the right to make moral judgments about someone else? Isn't that God's job? At some point along the way, I would say, yes, it is God's job. But are we meant to examine each other's life? Are we meant to call each other on some things? Well, in verse 15 of chapter 7, Right after Jesus has said, judge not, he gives us these words, beware. Beware of what? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So what Jesus is saying here is that we need to be discerning people. 
We need to be people who are willing to look at the lives of ourselves and others and there will be some value judgments that we are making for a purpose. So what really was Jesus saying then when he said judge not? What he was saying here comes with the rest of the passage and the rest of that first verse. It says there is no double standard. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 says judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So another way of saying that would be, be prepared to be held to account and live up to the same standards you apply to others. Let me say that again. Be prepared to be held to account and live up to the same standard you apply to others. Bargerhoff says it this way. Jesus was not advocating a hands-off approach to moral accountability, refusing to allow anyone to make moral judgments in any sense. Quite the opposite, Jesus was explicitly rebuking the hypocrisy of those who were quick to see the sins of others, but were blind and unwilling to hold themselves accountable to the same standard that they were imposing on everyone else. In other words, beware of impaired Judgment. Verse 3. Why do you seek to see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is a ridiculous picture. Let me help show you how ridiculous that is. I'll be right back. Can you imagine having this in your eye? I told you, Justin, I was going to get rid of this thing. It's my son Justin's piece of wood, and it's been in my garage forever. See, my son Justin works for Bruins Matrice Service. And this was supposed to be made into a gift for his brother and sister at their wedding. <laughs> nice. Anyways, one of the jobs that Justin has is he, he helps when the trees are cut down by this, these tree service guys, he feeds the chipper. And of course, you're supposed to protect yourself. So you put in your safety glasses and so on. Now imagine, actually, you know what? Justin and Reese, because, come on up here. I need your, your volunteer here. Just a second. I just volunteered you. Voluntold you. Come on. Hurry up. So imagine Justin and Reese were working together. And because we worked too hard, Reese, you're going to stand over here. Justin, you're going to hold this. Okay. Now imagine both of them were working hard. And all of a sudden, together, they were doing stuff. And then, exactly the same time, they both stopped and went, ouch, I have something in my eye. Reese has a speck. Yeah, you can say it if you want, yeah. Oh, I have something in my eye. <laughs> and Justin has something in his eye too. Ouch. <laughs> like, how ridiculous of a picture is this? Now, let's just say that Reese said, Justin, can you help me get the speck out of my eye? You think Justin would be able to do that? You think Reese would be able to get the log out of his eye? Probably not. 
But it's a ridiculous picture Jesus is using. Thank you, guys. You may sit down. But why does he use that picture? Because it's a picture of impaired judgment. And it's a dramatic picture of impaired judgment. And it's meant to remind us that this is serious. And it should not be taken lightly. See, when it comes to discerning, there are things that get in the way. When we examine the lives of others and assess where they're at, while today I want to look at a couple of things that might be logs in our eyes. And I know there's an exhaustive list of things that I could bring out and say, this is why I tend to judge. And believe me, my life is full of that challenge. But what are a couple of things? I just want to draw your attention to two. The first one is pride. And I think I could, I could try and illustrate it by talking about it, but I think it's better if we let Jesus do that by sharing one of his parables. From Luke 18, 9 to 14, he says, it says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, for many of us who have grown up in the church, myself being one of those, my tendency is to think that, you know, I'm not a bad guy. I don't have one of those testimonies, you know, where I grew up and I, I, I was into drugs and I was doing all these bad things and I stole and I robbed banks and I murdered. And all. I don't have that kind of testimony. You know, I gave up my drinking problem when I was six. Some of you got that. Maybe it wasn't that funny, I'm sorry. But sometimes we do that when we think about, okay, well, why would I share my testimony? I don't really have, God's never done anything in my life. I'm a pretty good person. So the tendency then is to think of ourselves kind of like, you know, I don't have that much wrong with me. We're kind of like, God, I thank you that I'm not like that other guy. Extortionists, injustice, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I face fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It reminds me of when I was in grade six. I had been invited to play ball hockey with a whole bunch of guys from our Christian service brigade group, which is like a boys club for Christians. So we had this Christian ball hockey tournament. And it was intense. Us against the Alliance Church down the road, and we were in the finals. And everybody, one of us, was a Christian. So we're playing, and there's guys, you know, grade 12s, and I'm the little guy. I'm the sixth grader, and I'm up there trying to score a goal. And all of a sudden, the goalie takes his stick, zoom, smash, tries to smash my ankles. Me, being the good Christian boy that I am, you know what I told him? What? How can you call yourself a Christian? Like, who thinks of that? 
I should have just slashed them back. But that gives you a picture into my heart. I felt very good about the fact that I didn't have all this stuff in my background. But I believe that pride comes from a very deep misunderstanding of my own heart and what determines my standing before God. A belief that I don't have, to, I have, don't have sin to deal with in my own life and that somehow I am responsible for my right standing before God or that God grades on a curve. Let me look what Ephesians 2, 1 to 9 says. It says it so well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, catch this, by nature, objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. Oh, I'm glad that's not where it stops. But God. Catch that phrase? Say it with me. But God. Come on. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's how we got saved. That's how we were able to be in right standing with God. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, Lyndon, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Lyndon, not a result of works you've done so that you can't boast. As long as I believe that my actions are what determine my standing before God, then I will examine and assess the lives of others using comparisons to myself. But it's not. I will judge them then. It's kind of like I believe I'm better. And you know what that is? That's a massive plank that I have in my eye and I need to work on, I need to give to God. But if my standing before God is determined by God, then the one, he's the one who is rich in mercy, the one who demonstrates the immeasurable riches of his kindness, pardon me, his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If I believe that it is his grace that has saved me through faith, that this is not my own doing, it is a gift of God, it's not a result of my work so that no one may boast, then I will examine and, accept and assess the lives of others as a recipient of the same grace and mercy that they need. There's no room for pride then. So my desire then is not to somehow place myself above, but to come alongside to lift up. It's a position of humility. The second one I want to mention briefly is fear. See, fear is the belief that if someone is better than me, it diminishes my worth. Again, I believe this comes from a deep misunderstanding. I will be critical of people because if, I, if, if they're better than me, then somehow my worth isn't quite as high and therefore I'm not valuable as they are. 
So I try and drag them down to make myself feel better. But if my worth is determined by anything that I cannot control, then my price tag will constantly be changing. So if my price tag is determined by how you think about how I preach today, some of you are going to walk out of here going, hey, you know, you did a good job, Lyndon, thanks. And I'm going to go, woo. And some of you are going to walk out of here and go, you got in my kitchen and that was really bad. Or you were wrong. Or you just yelled and screamed a lot. And all of a sudden now my value and my self-worth is less. But if my value is based on that, then I again have impaired judgment. So then what determines my worth? Again, I believe it's what God says about us. And I'm trying to learn this day in, day out as a recovering performaholic. So I'm just going to show you a couple of verses that I think are important. There's lots in the scriptures. What does God say about us? Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Or Ephesians 2.10, right after, by grace you have been saved. Who does it say you are? It says, for you, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is who we are. And if I believe that and if I live that, then I will not need to put somebody down to try and push myself up. My feet will firmly be planted on the ground so that I can reach out and be about helping people up rather than judging and knocking them down. Now, either one of these two things, pride or fear, can, can earn me the title hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? Well, the word hypocrite is rooted in the Greek word hypocrites or krites, which means stage actor, pretender, dissembler, so think of a hypocrite as a person who pretends to be a certain way but really acts and believes the total opposite. Other words we might use, phony, fake, pretender. God does not call us to be hypocrites. He calls us instead to have an honest assessment of ourselves. But an honest assessment based on what God has done and who he says we are. So Jesus is saying, guys, ladies, let me help you lose the log. Take off your impairment glasses. Confess your pride. Lyndon, confess your pride. And admit that you are a recipient of God's grace and mercy. Lyndon, confess your fear and accept the fact that it is God's assessment that determines your value. And as we lose the log, as we start to have that mindset, then if you go to verse 5, it actually says it's okay to go after the speck. Verse 5, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's okay. See, if I see, someone, see myself as someone who is a recipient of God's grace and mercy, and if I value myself through the lenses of how God sees me, then my assessment of others can be shaped, how? By God's heart for them. I will see more clearly now 
how he sees them. See, last Sunday, Pastor David, he reminded us of John 3.16. It's a verse that we all know, many of us. I shouldn't assume that. But it's a very familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. But verse 17 comes right after that. What does it say? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, God's heart for people is not condemnation or judgment. His heart is for restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Any of you who've met my wife know that she's wise, sweet, but she can pack a punch. And it's always done in love. What do I mean by that? When I was raising our, we, we were raising our kids, there were times when my kids stepped out of line. Surprise! And I was, of course, the one who had to play bad cop. And I had to make sure they didn't do it again. But one of the times, Doretha came to me and she said, you know, hon, I, I've been noticing something and I just want to encourage and challenge you on something. And I was, of course, like, What? She says, when I watch you, sometimes I feel like you're more interested in punishing our children than you are in training them. See the difference? One is, you get what you deserve. The other is, here, let me show you why you shouldn't do this again. Yes, there still might be consequences, but my reason for doing it and the tone in which I do it is designed for their best, not giving me an excuse to go, ah, I got my anger out. Somebody suggested that one of the best ways to describe what we're talking about is to change the word confront to carefront. Do we believe that it's in our best interest of this person? If I am called to take the speck out of their eye, am I interested in the best interest of them or am I more interested in being right? Colossians, pardon me, so I encourage you to, 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 to care front for each other. But there's a caution I also want to bring. Not everything we see in others is a speck. It's not always a true speck. So some of the things that, that we think are things that should be dealt with in people's lives, they're not talked about in Scripture. That, that's why it's important for us to look at Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As we evaluate our own lives and as we evaluate the lives of others, as we look at the specks and maybe the logs, the standard by which we want to look is through the lenses of God's word. Not tradition, not preference, but God's word. Finally, there's a secondary implication. What about the speck holder? We're all speck holders at some point in our lives. Well, verse 5 refers to that person as a brother. You'll be able to see to be able to remove that from your brother's eye. That's a real challenge today because in today's world, as, even as believers, we kind of have this individual approach to faith. 
Like, I'm responsible to God, so just leave me and God to take care of it ourselves. But the reality is we're called to be a part of the body of Christ. And so we are part of a larger group of people that God calls us to say, let's take care of each other. So to the spec holder, are we willing to entrust ourselves to the help of others that love us? Some of you may not know this about me. Some of you may, but um, I'm the only, well, I'm one of the only people you may know that can look at life through the eyes of someone else because I have a corneal transplant. That wasn't funny. Sorry, I tried. <laughs> Go ahead, show that picture. That's not me, but that's what my eye looked like at one point. So can you imagine, <laughs> the doctor, he made me laugh. He says, it was really hard to work on you because you have a very Neanderthal forehead. <laughs> Thanks, doc. But what, what that is, is those are tiny little stitches that held in the transplant. So one time we were driving along after I'd had my surgery and I was, my vision was pretty good. And, and all of a sudden my eyes just like, ah, oh, it's on fire. It's burning. Come on, it's irritated. And we were getting close to Salmon Arm, so we stopped in Salmon Arm and I'm like, I think one of my stitches must have broke. So it's like irritated and I'm leaking on the one side. And, and so we found an ophthalmologist. Now imagine if, if I had gone to the bathroom in Walmart, in Salmon Arm, I don't even have one there grabbed a pair of tweezers from my wife's purse and started trying to get that out. How would that have gone? I'm sorry, you're all, you guys are all queasy, I'm sorry. You can take that down if people are feeling sick. But instead, I went for help. I was able to say, I can't do this myself, I need help. I need accountability, I need someone to come in there and take it out. And they took it out and it was great relief and we were able to travel on and go on. And so that to me is a picture out of mutual submission and love and trust and, of course, out of forgiveness because, you know what, when we care front each other, sometimes we're going to get it wrong and it's going to hurt. And it's sometimes not easy and it's sometimes not just cut and dried. But to think we have the best interest of each other and we're going to work together, forgiveness and all. But if I come into that situation trusting and if I see myself as a recipient of grace and mercy and that my identity is secure in who God says I am, then I don't need to fear the honest examination and assessment of loving brothers and sisters. Wouldn't it be cool if we could learn to say this to each other? You can say anything or tell me anything you want as long as I know you love me. That's a challenge. So my hope is today, Tim, I'm going to need your help again. This plank is a representative of my pride and my fear. Thank you. And in, 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 in churches, a lot of times we say, well, bring it to the altar. What does that mean? Bring the stuff that's inside you that you want God to deal with. Just bring it forward as a symbol of saying, God, I want you to deal with in my life with this in my life. And there may be some things that, that God's bringing to your mind right now where there's, okay, I need to deal with that, where maybe I've been judging people or maybe I have felt judged and there's been broken relationship. God's, that's not God's desire. God's desire is restoration and part of that is confession. And confession, you, folks, 
This is, I'll stop with this because I know I'm long. Confession, sometimes we, we're afraid of confession because if I confess, then I'm going to look stupid. But the reality is confession is all about freedom. I don't know about you, but whenever I've finally gone and talked to somebody and, and tried to make things right, there's a, there's a level of freedom that comes. It's not always easy because I don't always get the response I want, but I've done everything I can. If there's things that you want to say to God today, hey God, deal with this plank in my life. I can't do it. I can't get that stitch out myself. Let me encourage you. While we're celebrating communion together, while we're singing the songs, uh, there are people that would love to pray with you or just if you want to come up on your own. Just as a sign to God, God, I want want you to walk with me through dealing this. It's not a one-time fixes all. It's It's a process. Let's pray together. God, I come to you as one who wrestles in this area. And I, I, I come to you humbly asking for you to continue the process in me of making me more conscious of the fact that it's you that determines my worth. It's you that has determined my right standing with you. And because of that, I don't have to try and be somebody I'm not. I don't have to try and judge. I don't have to be proud. I don't have to be afraid. I can let go of my, res- my resentment. I can work through that process. God, I pray that as we examine that and as we will uh, once again be um, walking through communion, um, Lord, I pray that this would be a meaningful time of doing uh, the beautiful business of letting you examine our hearts and taking out the stuff that you want to help remove. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.